This is Global Humanist Shop Talk, the podcast edition. I'm M.L. Clark. I didn't grow up in a punk household, the furthest thing from it. I was dancing in diapers to Elvis and Johnny Cash, on car rides with the Everly Brothers and Stompin' Tom, doing homework to country and classical, or listening to the Backstreet Boys on CD. Thanks to three younger siblings, I also lingered in the realm of child-safe tunes, especially from the 60s and 70s longer than my peers. And it's funny because I can now tell you some of the wild histories behind quote-unquote white music, like how Johnny Cash's first wife was once mistaken for a black woman thanks to a poor quality photo related to his sentencing for drug smuggling at the border, and how this put Cash in the crosshairs of southern U.S. hate groups who were eager to cancel him with boycotts and death threats for even the slightest whiff of miscegenation, that most odious of terms used for the idea of procreation between two people perceived to be of different racial backgrounds. But such musicians were still generally seen as embodying traditional Merican values. However much some of them might have been seen as corrupt and corrupting in their respective heydays and contexts, by the time I'd been introduced to them, they were more or less status quo. High school changed everything. Suddenly, I was around tons of kids who listened to a cornucopia of different sounds. Slipknot and Tool, Green Day and Smashing Pumpkins, Joy Division and Radiohead, Fish and Dave Matthews, Bare Naked Ladies and The Smiths, The Weaker Thans and whatever local band they'd just seen live in Kensington Market. It was an utter explosion of new aesthetics. And that's not even including my increased exposure to international music, in part through Japanese anime, and in part due to an increased ability to wander independently through Toronto's bus system to explore various cultural festivals. One dear adult friend of mine also introduced me to wide-ranging scenes like noise bands and tuku music, and when I found my first CD with Oliver Mudikudzi's tunes down at Sam the Record Man's on Young Street, with its two giant black records looming massively over a bright red outer facade, Ah, I was over the moon. I was becoming worldly. Well, sort of. My family had neither the money nor the inclination to partake in concerts, even the free outdoor variety. So while my more affluent friends were always talking about tickets to the latest big event, or out smoking and drinking underage in the downtown core, hopping between the Silver Dollar Room, Sneaky D's, the Velvet Underground, the Dance Cave, the Horseshoe, and various little upstairs bars in Kensington, along Queen and King, and in Rosedale. I was always on the edge of my peers and their first-hand experiences with wilder music culture. So I was pretty excited, as you might imagine, to pick up my very first anarchist t-shirt on sale for five bucks at the iconic Black Market Vintage Clothing Store on Queen Street West, back before the big box retailers wiped out most of that neighborhood's eclectic flavor. For me, at around 14, that t-shirt was a thrill of minor rebellion, 
from within an aspirational class bracket that didn't really allow me the funds or opportunities to perform identity in any bigger way. My household might not have been radical or counterculture. It couldn't afford to be while struggling to appear middle class, but oh, I was making a statement now, wasn't I? I was wearing this t-shirt with pride one day at the house of some adult friends whose kids I babysat and who had provided me with some semblance of normalcy and shelter from the more violent aspects of my family home when the mom pointed out the irony of buying a piece of clothing with the anarchy symbol on it. I was gutted. She was so right. But in that instant, all I could feel was shame. I bought it in a thrift shop in an edgy, hip, cool part of town, not a big brand outlet or Zellers down the street. But still, my little act of rebellion had been provided by a corporation that knew perfectly well how to use the punk aesthetic to make money. And although we just talked about an article of clothing in episode 11, where we explored the sneakerhead phenomenon, I have to say that after my friend made this observation, suddenly I saw the quote-unquote sellouts everywhere. Punk bands in particular were lending their brands to clothing stores, oddity shops, and footwear. Now, I knew that musicians needed sponsorships and other forms of material marketing to make money, but oh, after being called out for that mass-printed anarchist t-shirt, something substantially transformed in the way I viewed punk itself. And for the better, I think. Because years later, whenever I find myself reading about the conservative politics of many prominent, even iconic punk musicians, I'm not anywhere near as surprised as friends who were immersed in the punk brand for life. Why? Because I'd already gone through that mental flip, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures. It's that same mental flip which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, and today we're laying down some of the dissonant histories, curious semiotics, and humanist concerns around the punk aesthetic. Okay, so what is punk? I mean, if we go back to Shakespeare, the word first meant female sex worker and was later extended to mean a boy or young man kept by an older man for sex, or any man used for sex in US prison, and then for a general class of people considered worthless, contemptible, on the raggedy margins of society. These are unusual origins for what we now consider to be a signifier of rebellious counterculture, of fighting the man and resisting authority. But sure enough, after the term had been used intermittently in the early 1970s to describe bands in retrospect, even the Ramones, 
who along with the Sex Pistols popularized the term in relation to a specific sound and musical lifestyle, had a song called 53rd and 3rd, which was written from the perspective of a male sex worker trying to catch a trick. Granted, many terms have been taken back in this manner. Words like Yankee and queer, which were originally used to disparage others until the marginalized group in question reclaimed them and started using them with pride. But punk is different, and I think you can see in the word's beginnings why the label now fits so easily into mainstream corporate economies and cultures, even though some of its best manifestations involve advocating for anti-racist and anti-oppressive politics. Because yes, Technically, sex workers and the unhoused and the underemployed and people who spend significant chunks of their lives in the carceral system are outside of mainstream culture, but they have been placed there, given these roles, by the exploitative and oppressive nature of mainstream culture. The prison state creates the prisoner. Cultures of entitlement to do what we wish with other bodies if we have enough money for it create exploited workers in a variety of fields, used and then discarded when they no longer serve our needs. To be truly punk, truly counterculture, outside these outcast and marginalized roles baked into mainstream society, well that's far more difficult. Always has been. As a science fiction writer, I would be remiss if I didn't also note that literature and film absolutely follow this trend of punk aesthetics that superficially seem to be anti-status quo when they're simply following prescribed roles for resistance within existing systems. We had an explosion of cyberpunk in the 1970s through the 1990s, and rest assured, I was as much a fan of William Gibson and Blade Runner as any good, respectable sci-fi lover of the late 20th century. But I also came to realize how traditional and mainstream the bones of those supposedly transgressive high-tech futures really were. Many after all were simply tech-heavy neo-noir, following the same character types and plot progressions of noir films and novels from the 1930s to 1950s, a time when men especially felt adrift, as if societal changes in the Great Depression and then a Second World War had left no place for a streetwise, cynical survivor, heavy perhaps with the trauma of his past sins, to live in peace by his own code. Not in a world of femme fatales and foreigners and weak men all around him, to say nothing of a general failure on the part of state government to provide a better order for us all. Nowadays, it's impossible not to see the nationalist anxieties underpinning work like Blade Runner and Neuromancer, which were produced at a time when the East seemed to be surging in tech sector economic prowess and threatening to disrupt US and general Western hegemony. The stories told in those grimy, dimly lit cyber futures are considered dystopic in large part because they're Asian in design, because they're telling Western audiences that white humanity is on the brink of ruin. 
More recent science fiction and fantasy subgenres also use the suffix punk, like solar punk, steampunk, hope punk, and even silk punk. And in all of these two, nationalistic ideas routinely play out. Steampunk has been criticized for advancing history in ways that erase atrocity, unduly center affluent white experiences, and fetishize technologies that would only have been available at the time through colonialism and slavery. Conversely, silk punk, which was most popularly used in relation to Ken Liu's recent Dandelion Dynasty series, struck a nerve with many readers because his fantasy series is even more closely tied to Chinese dynastic history than Game of Thrones is inspired by the Wars of the Roses. For many Chinese readers, to call basic national history punk simply because the representation of Chinese fantasy was atypical to Western readers proved quite insulting. I should note, though, that Ken Liu is not at all to blame for this. Western publishing is adamant about promoting works within fairly normative, conservative contexts, and Ken Liu had been working very hard to bring over Chinese writers to tip the balance away from such simplistic prejudices around stories drawn from different historical and geopolitical contexts. This is simply another case where the term punk actually reinforces the status quo by putting China in a predefined role as a radical outsider in Western systems, instead of advancing a literary culture where Chinese narratives do not exist as a response to Western storytelling at all. So when punk musicians today turn out to have pretty conservative politics, when Johnny Ramone himself, an unwavering Republican, claimed that punk is right-wing, who could really be surprised by this assertion? I'm going to cite from a 2003 interview that Johnny had with conservative punk because it alludes to the issues with solar punk and hope punk as well. In it, Johnny says, what happened in the 70s and early 80s was a lot of disaffected kids, the kind who would have been hippies a decade before, drifted into punk. But when you think of who punks are, they're greasers, people who didn't fit in, but they didn't back down either, who above all love America. Now obviously that last part doesn't quite hold for the Sex Pistols and the UK punk scene in general, but the part about punk as a cultural movement, pulling from a demographic that would have been hippies in another era, strikes a deep chord, and I have some excellent resources that I encourage listeners to explore in relation to the idea that hippie movements were fairly mainstream forms of resistance too. After all, in a time when many people could not simply check out of modern society's oppressive social contract due to, say, the color of their skin, hippies were predominantly young, white boomers who decided to retreat into communities of their own creation and who often made money by exoticizing other cultural traditions in the process. Today, hope and solar punk face similar charges especially when Westerners encounter more eco-friendly lifestyles that are normative to other cultures, 
then start to treat them as exciting and radical innovations here. I could go on, but others have said so much on these subjects already, and so much better. I recommend Adam Degree's Primitivism and the Counterculture, an article for his philosophy podcast, The Partially Examined Life, that ties hippie fetishization into a long history of Western ideas about the primitive other. And pursuant to my comments about cyberpunk, I suggest Input Magazine's optimistic view that the genre can still be salvaged. Chan Ki Hoon's, if cyberpunk is going to survive, it has to drop the racism, in no way avoids the subgenre's problems, but suggests that we can still transform the aesthetic into something better. We shall see. For a gripping account of Nazi punks in action, though, I also recommend It Did Happen Here, a documentary podcast hosted by Mike Crenshaw and Selena Flores. For a gripping account of Nazi punks in action, though, I also recommend It Did Happen Here, a documentary podcast hosted by Mike Crenshaw and Selena Flores that explores an horrific hate crime in 1988 that was related to white supremacist recruitment within the punk scene. And if you're in the mood for something more academic, Gerfried Ambrose's 2018 Guilty of Being White, Punk's Ambivalent Relationship with Race and Racism in the Journal of Popular Culture is a free-to-read exploration of the complexity of racist and racialized behaviors in various punk scenes, past and present. But for me, the biggest takeaway is that the punk aesthetic is often a misplaced application of fury with the existing system. There's a difference, that is, between wanting a system to change for the good of everyone and wanting a system to change because I am angry and the system hasn't worked for me. Because the punk aesthetic is highly performative, it's easy to be sold a way to perform disappointment with the existing system by the system, primarily to boost a personal brand. But are those choices actually improving your agency and the agency of those around you? There are plenty of ways to resist our current systems and plenty of reasons to engage in that resistance work at all. We just have to be more cautious around any rage against the machine that the machine is more than happy for us to pursue. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk Podcast Edition with M.L. Clark. New episodes launch every other Friday, first to Global Humanist Shop Talk, the column available at OnlySky, and then to other podcast distributors. Maurizio Ferraz is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo. Theme music comes care of Kabbalistic Village on SoundCloud and other background music is courtesy of Joseph McDade. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon, where I post a monthly newsletter, along with other updates on the full range of my writing projects. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Shop talkers, humanists, fellow travelers on this pale blue dot, Wherever this episode's little mental flip finds you in your lives, please remember to be kind to yourselves, to seek justice where you can, and above all else, 
to keep the conversation thriving. Thank you.